Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Welcome and bienvenidos um, to this panel discussion on Mexican-Minnesota contributions to this state's culture, commerce, and communities. As the proud daughter of a Mexican immigrant myself, I'm particularly pleased to be able to bring you a distinguished panel um, to talk about this. And our first one is going to be Maria Cristina Tadera, who is an artist and director of the Trio McNair Scholars Program at Oxford.
it's Orlando Cruz, and I love when young people say, that looks like the actor. And I say, it is, but with a sharpie, he's now Pancho Villa. <laughs> and so um, some of the works actually talk about DNA. This is Raratonga. I draw a lot from comics, from games, from different published um, items from Mexico, and then I incorporate it together. And this is a commentary on DNA and how could Raratonga, who is a comic character from the 70s, actually have green eyes and Afrocentric um, in, in, in this type um, classifications of roots. Um, so then um, I'm looking now more at immigration issues and um, I'm currently working on an exhibition caravan in Concordia, which is a group of artists here in the Twin Cities. And so this today is perfect um, as I try to explore different topics um, and combine the different prints together to tell the different legends that are currently contemporary at this time. Um, so part of my community organizing here in the Twin Cities has been to help by many years it took to get the statue of Emiliano Zapata. It was actually a donation from the Morelos government because the largest population in Minnesota is from Morelos. And we worked together with Minneapolis, Cuernavaca, the capital city of Morelos, and the Sister Cities Project with many people in the community to establish on 1200 Lake Street um, a statue of Zapata and the Plaza Centenario. Um, I also work as an independent curator, as I find it really important here, and I've brought exhibitions from Mexico, such as Artemio Rodriguez, when he was here for the 2010 celebration, for 2010, 1910, and 1810, celebrating Mexican um, revolution and independence here in the Twin Cities at McAllister College. Um, and then again, I found that there were less women being exhibited in Mexico and the United States of Mexican descent. So I curated an international exhibition here at High Point Center for Printmaking and selected nine artists from around Mexico to show the artworks of printmaking that's being done currently. And these are the artists that are in Oaxaca, and they now have opened up their own female-only studios in Oaxaca. Um, and then in academia, I think it's important also to incorporate the institutions that are established in the art world. And I've worked to create um, for the Frida Kahlo exhibition at the Walker Art Center. I published the most comprehensive exhibition history of Frida Kahlo, which I think is beneficial to Mexico and the United States. And there were over 110,000 people that saw the Frida Kahlo exhibition at the Walker. And I've been working with the Minneapolis Institute of Arts to highlight the artworks that they have from Latin America and Latinx artists in hopes that there's more purchases made to the collection. And so I'm trying to publish more articles about the art produced um, in both countries. And so last but not least, um, I think it's also important to highlight Mexican and Latino artists in the United States in Mexico and was last year invited to curate an exhibition at the Casa de Cultura in Mexico City and the exhibition is called Migrarte and it was about um, obviously migration and so there were four artists from Minnesota and I combined those artists with um, artists from across the country here in the United States. Sorry it was really fast quick <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you. I can particularly relate to the mustache exhibit. My uncle was nicknamed El Bigote because he had a very Pancho-like mustache. Um, and next up, I'd like to introduce Ma, uh, Irma Marquez Tavero. Ah, excuse me, Tavero. 
and um, each of them will get five minutes to speak, and then we'll start the discussion, and I look forward to your good questions uh, to ask of them. Great, thank you. Uh, five minutes uh, on the contributions of uh, Mexicans in Minnesota. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with my story. Oftentimes we can get into statistics and numbers, but there's also something very unique and special of putting a face um, to, to who we are. Um, I am a proud uh, immigrant of Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico, which is, yes, <laughs> which is um, a state on the western northern part of Mexico. Um, the reason why my family migrated is definitely not unique to, to my story. Um, there was a lot of um, struggles happening in my hometown, and ultimately, um, due to lack of resources and opportunities, my family decided to come to Minnesota. We had an uncle in St. James, Minnesota, which is a, a rural town about two hours south of the Twin Cities. And um, we migrated there because in the early 1980s, there was a large um, you know, recruitment of workers um, for a lot of meat packaging plants that were opening up in southern Minnesota, um, in greater Minnesota, Minnesota area. So my uncle was one of the first waves uh, to come and work in those meat packaging plants. And at that time, uh, my uncle said, you know, come to St. James, work for about two years, save enough money, and then go back. Um, and that, that was really the, the original plan. I was nine years old, so we, you know, we were fortunate enough to have a visa in our passports, um, and we crossed and came, um, drove from California, where our uncle picked us up, all the way to Minnesota in December of 1999. Um, and that really became my home. Um, and ultimately what ended up happening was that um, my parents separated and my mom, um, as a single mom, decided to stay um, and raise us here um, because of more opportunities um, than we would have in Mexico. And also at that moment, there was a large um, violence um, due to the Sinaloa drug cartels um, that was happening there that just made it um, even more difficult to think about going back there. Uh, and so we, St. James really became our home. Um, in terms of what I've seen um, change from the time that I was nine years old when I arrived to St. James to now has really taken, and, and it's been a work of, of, of three, 30 years in the making of how small towns really either adapt or don't adapt or embrace the, the new cultures that come to, to the um, small towns. In St. James, when we first arrived, um, there was, there was you know, the obvious resistance. There was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of um, you know, farmers that had been for generations um, asking, who are these people? What are they doing here? The majority of the folks that were coming from were from Mexico. Now we have a large percentage of people from um, Honduras and Guatemala. Um, and, and also uh, a lot of recruitment happened in, in the southern states of Texas and Arizona. Um, and, you know, I think uh, one of the stories that, that I want to share in terms of like the contrast of where we have been and now is uh, in 2006 there was a huge uh, march of um, at that point known as they were not an immigrant. I'm not sure if many of you remember that. Um, it's really um, an opportunity to highlight the need for um, immigration reform at that point. And so the, the idea behind that, the sentiment behind that was to really show on one day the impact that immigrants have in this, in this country um, by not showing up to work. And, and you know, this is my activist self in high school saying, well, I'm not gonna go to school um, and I'm gonna stay home to really show that, you know, we are needed and we are, we are deserving of, of being here just as much as anybody else. And so, 
Um, we organized a small little march in um, St. James, Minnesota. Mind you, it's a small rural town of about 4,000 people. So when I say downtown, I literally mean like three blocks. Um, and, and we organized um, a small march at that point really to, to showcase that. And, um, you know, we had uh, students drive in their, in their trucks with Confederate flags um, as we were doing a peaceful march back and forth, back and forth. Um, you know, and, and that, that is really like what we were dealing with at that point and just really not knowing how to, um, how to engage the Latino community, even though the community had been there as early as, you know, 1960s, 1970s. Um, but very, very much had been working in silos for a really long time. Um, now, St. James, I would say, has, um, there was a, a, a recent article of St. James in, in the news, uh, really recently of how much of the work that it's taken for a community to really embrace um, one another um, and due to a lot of community organizers, due to a lot of really um, folks in the other communities coming forward and, and curiously asking, you know, we want to connect, we don't know how, how do we make this work, you know, 50% of our elementary schools and schools in St. James are Latino. We have, um, the, the reason why downtown St. James is currently thriving is because of the many restaurants of our, you know, Mexican immigrants um, and also the, our, you know, stores are occupied and, and owned by, by Mexican and Latino immigrants um, or Latinos themselves that have really made um, small communities thrive again. Um, and so, because of a lot of organizing, uh, La Convivencia Hispana, which is a nonprofit that was started a few years ago because of the need to really figure out how to a small town work together, um, started organizing and developing different programming that engaged the different communities in St. James um, to really show, um, you know, what it is to embrace different cultures. Um, all that to say, um, I wanted to highlight rural in greater Minnesota because oftentimes, you know, we hear history of the metro area, we hear history of the contributions of Mexicans um, in, in here, but we also have to remember that um, Mexicans and immigrants exist, and Latinos exist in, um, in greater Minnesota, and we are really making uh, huge contributions in those small towns, and we will continue to do so um, as Minnesota um, continues to be a more um, you know, brown and black state. Uh, in terms of myself, um, I, as I mentioned, grew up in St. James. I am uh, also um, part of the uh, undocumented Juma movement. I am proud um, recipient and fortunate and privileged recipient of DACA and currently working as the executive director of Latino Lead, which is a nonprofit that advances Latinx um, collective. Um, the main focus is leadership development. Thank you. And next we'll hear from Rebecca Sadarsky. Thanks, David. Morning. <laughs> Morning. Morning. Oh, afternoon. Um, yes, my name is Rebecca Sadarsky, and I, um, uh, I, I wear many hats. Um, uh, I came, my husband and I came to Rochester in 1991, and we began our family. Uh, Fast forwarded to now, and that we had seven children, and um, they are all spread out. Um, I have one that went to the Navy, one into service this, this country, 
Um, and uh, so he uh, is in Norfolk, Virginia. I have another one who is a deputy sheriff in Olmsted County uh, Sheriff's Department. I have uh, <coughs> two other daughters, one is in theater, one is uh, into graphic design, and I have three younger ones. Um, one that is in Boston University, just started, um, and um, he wants to go for music, theory, uh, music composition, and two more they're trying to figure out what they want to do. But, um, they, that's um, my husband and my contribution to the state of Minnesota uh, so far. But no, it's, it, uh, my husband is a teacher, a Spanish teacher at Century, at Century High School in Rochester. And uh, we truly believe in family. Um, that was uh, one of the things that we try to instill in our children, the, um, the, the beauty of family, the beauty of working together, the beauty of helping others. Um, Currently, I'm working for the Minnesota Department of Human Services, and my job is, is going out there to communities and hearing from them their experiences with case management services. Um, case management is, is, uh, case management services are being redesigned in Minnesota, so we want to go out there and hear their experiences receiving that service. I previously worked for the Chicano Latino Affairs Council at that time, now at Minnesota Council on Latino Affairs. I'm originally, when you said Culiacan, I said, yeah, I'm from Mazatlan, which is two hours south of Culiacan, so Sinaloa is represented very well here. So, um, And um, so my husband and I so decided to um, stay in Rochester. Uh, I also work for the Rochester Public Schools, and I um, help um, the special ed department, and I was going out to um, test young children that if they needed any special help, uh, I was helping with uh, um, making sure that they would go through the test and so on, and if they needed services, they would get them. I also opened a business in Rochester in 2008, and that's, I think, um, not because I did it, but it, it just happened that it was in 2008 when we uh, went into, into uh, recession. And as you know, um, a lot of Latinos were the ones that were taking all the risks and were opening up business. And that was, uh, at that time, the Rochester Area Chamber of Commerce told me that, that um, we Latinos were the ones that were opening up businesses at that time. So that's another contribution uh, of our Latino community. Uh, I am also uh, a community um, supporter, organizer, uh, uh, whatever you want to call me because I'm, I'm out there. I'm currently a commissioner for the po po uh, Rochester Police Policy Oversight Commission and our, and our job is to connect our communities with the police department and making sure that we're building relationships and, and I think that has been, uh, has worked really well and, and um, want to build the trust of our Latino community to uh, go up to police and, and for police to uh, accept the um, uh, consular ID, which they do, and report crimes because our communities are um, not reporting crimes that they are victims of. And so we are telling them, please 
report anything that you are um, suffering from or if you're a victim, victim of a crime. I am also um, president of the uh, board of directors of the Alliance of Chicano Hispanics in Latin, America, in Latin Americans in Rochester. So we are a small nonprofit. Um, when you were talking about rural versus urban, we suffer from that because many of the services are, uh, or the funding uh, for uh, those small organizations stay in the metro area. And we don't get that in the rural areas. And Rochester people don't consider us as rural, but yes, we are. Um, so we, we struggle with that. And so we're a bunch of Latino volunteers that are there to help our community. We support the Mexican consulate when they come with a, a, a mobile consulate. And um, uh, uh, we've done Know Your Rights. We've invited uh, the, um, LCM, LCM um, to, to come and talk to the community uh, while the uh, consulate is having their mobile consulate. Um, another thing um, that I am very passionate about is in the area of diversity and inclusion. Um, I am a board member um, for the Cultural and Ethnic uh, Communities Leadership Council for the Minnesota Department of Human Services. We advise the Commissioner uh, of Human Services on issues related to disparities uh, um, uh, in, in human services and in health and um, looking at all the determinants of health and so we, we advise the Commissioner of that. Um, I am very proud that I also brought uh, the Intercultural Cities Initiative to Rochester, and now Rochester is considered the first intercultural cities in the United States. Uh, it's a Council of Europe program, and so we're going right now through the um, index, which is a, a, an analysis, and I believe Mexico City is an intercultural cities, and Toronto is as well another intercultural cities, but we got to be first. Uh, Mayo and Rochester likes to be first, so we had to be first. So anyway, um, one of the things that I am very passionate about more another is for us to tell our own story. We have to tell our own story. We cannot allow others to tell it for us. Um, I like to collaborate with other organizations and to work on common interests. Um, and I've done it through the work at the Minnesota Council of Latino Affairs that I did previously. And, and for me, and a very uh, wise man, uh, some, uh, one day told me that if you're not on the table, you are on the menu. <laughs> so we have to be part of um, all of these things that we all are doing because it's an opportunity for us to tell our story and an opportunity to not be on the menu. Rebecca, I suspect you will see more hours in the day than most of us because I'm not sure how you accomplish all of that. Um, our last panelist is Rodolfo Gutierrez, who is the Executive Director of ACER, uh, which in case you don't know, stands for Hispanic Advocacy and Community Empowerment through Research. 
Hacer is also the Spanish word for to realize, to make, or to do, which is a very apt description of his organization. Thank you. So I'm going to stand up because um, as uh, Ambassador Davida, I learned that if I don't move, everybody can fall asleep when I am speaking. <laughs> so I'm going to try to talk like that. And um, I've been teaching here at the U for quite a while, and I am back to this auditorium when I was here like 10 years ago. And uh, it was fantastic, so I feel really glad coming back here. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, but I am feeling disappointed because I, I didn't see my mustache in the pictures. <laughs> so uh, I feel now neglected. But, uh, I also survived. Um, well, as, uh, what I was going to say about Acer is already done, so I want to talk about myself. I came here uh, 20 years ago with the goal of completing uh, my PhD in history. My idea was to do it in three years, or us, because sometimes you know the dissertation takes your time. And, well, uh, now I have counted 20 winters already coming to Minnesota. And uh, thinking that the next winter maybe we're going to see the Vikings going to the Super Bowl and that'll be making things easier, but no, no, it's not going to happen. Yeah, well, um, I came here with my family. Uh, I'm from Mexico City originally, but I do have two kids, one is from Oaxaca. Uh, she born in Oaxaca when we were living there. And the other one is from Tijuana because we were also moving to Tijuana. And um, that said, uh, my wife is also from Mexico City. And um, when we were studying both for our master's degrees at the Colegio we met each other. So we were, in a way, a nomad family who came here to the north of the north, uh, close to uh, Canada and the Penguins, uh, to study, trying to learn something, something different. And we certainly learned something different. Uh, first, that uh, uh, we needed to be more open-minded because when we came here in uh, 1998, it was very difficult even to find tortillas in any store. And uh, the most famous store in, in town was El Burrito, El Burrito Mercado in uh, West St. Paul. And it was kind of a burden needing to go there because if you don't have a car here, especially in winter, it's kind of difficult. The other thing I learned is that so many people here believe that uh, eating Mexican food was going to Taco Bell. Quite <laughs> not true, sorry. Um, but today, things are very different because you can go not only to eat tacos to the Ocampo or uh, to Taco Taxi in Minneapolis, but you also can find several options of high cuisine coming from Mexicans who are bringing their cuisines here. Uh, nowadays, you can find several businesses led by uh, people who are Mexicans or Latinos, even uh, mostly Mexicans. And you know that today we are uh, reported by the Census uh, Bureau as being around 300,000 people of Latino origin and almost uh, 270,000 of them Mexicans, um, according to the census. According to few Hispanics, we are 100,000 more. All of them undocumented. Well, we, we don't know because they are not counted properly. But we are that many Mexican people living here, so we are more and more visible. Today, there is no county in, in Minnesota without any person of Latino origin, and I am pretty sure they are Mexicans, especially those two who are in international polls. <laughs> yes, there are two Mexicans. 
And uh, every single county in Minnesota now counts uh, Latinos. So that is really important for me. And uh, as a historian also, uh, I get involved in a non-profit organization that exists there uh, 10 years ago uh, to work with uh, the community for the community and trying to make things like uh, more uh, easy for them to understand in a, in a way also to provoke them to get engaged civically speaking and why not politically speaking. Uh, we've been trying to do that in this event, not easy. But I've learned a lot of things, like for example, as uh, Mark Bishop was saying before, our history of Mexicans in Minnesota is over 160 years now. In uh, 1860, when it was the first uh, census taken here before the uh, division of the territory of uh, Wisconsin, um, they counted two Mexicans. Five years later, they were four. They grew up 100%. <laughs> Then they figure out that they were the children of the two first Mexicans here because they didn't have many options. Uh, there was no Super Bowl yet. But, um, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, since then, the presence of the Mexicans, our Latino population, has been constant in Minnesota. But also, somehow, not really understood, not really looked at carefully. And by the 1920s, uh, the Mexicans were really important for the economy of the state because by then, the, the exploitation of beets, sugar beets, was really important, and a lot of people were invited to come from Mexico to work in the sugar beets fields. And they were working there, and losing their arms, their legs, their feet, their fingers, because no one else wanted to do that job. It's very risky. So thousands of people were working in the uh, sugar beets fields. During the Second World War, Minnesota was favored because a lot of people wanted to go through the program of Acero to Chicago, from Mexico to Chicago, but there were not enough uh, employment uh, offers for them, so many of them moved down to Illinois, uh, the state of Illinois entirely, but also to uh, Iowa and Minnesota. So we do have a large influx of people who came here, and they started working not only on the fields, but also in the cities. And since then, start to grow kind of a local economy that was becoming very dynamic and diverse. So since the 40s, we can say the economy is uh, widely sustained by uh, immigration from Mexico in Minnesota. Furthermore, today uh, we have a switch in demographic terms. Uh, I am also a demographer. So uh, the population here in Minnesota is going older and older. So uh, the older the oldest is getting, uh, the needs are growing. So I see myself in, in not so short term, I guess, uh, but needing some assistance. And uh, with that said also is that uh, today we look at this imbalance with the white population, which is uh, younger, and preparing themselves to serve the older people. Because there are less people who are going to schools being white. And we do have a lot of people of color, I don't like much of the whole, because white is also a color, isn't it? So people of color um, are um, in larger kind of possibilities in number of going to schools because they are younger. So among them, today, the uh, Latino population uh, has a median age of uh, 24 years of age. So they are young in general. The white population is 38 years of age by median. 
So we do have the need uh, of seeing this uh, young population as an investment we need to do in order to have better kind of opportunities of maintaining the situation we do have and enjoy in Minnesota. Because uh, so many people say Minnesota is the best state in the country. Some more say it's the second, but being the first or the second is going to be difficult in the long term if we don't do something. And today, the economy, the local economies are very important. Now, now, now yesterday at the Star Tribune, a uh, wonderful article published uh, talked about working uh, city. The mayor was telling us about how important is the presence of Mexicans, Latinos in the local economy, which otherwise will be just lost. We will be having working city as a ghost town because almost half of the population is of Latino origin. And that is really important. So that said, I was invited to talk about the importance of in economic and, uh, and arts and all that. But Tina just illustrated the arts. So wonderful. And uh, you can go also to uh, um, the Chico del Sol. And you'll see there several murals and uh, artistic interpretations. And not only telling you about pictures or, or paintings or, or murals, but also the history of Latinos here in Minnesota. And um, when we, I was looking at some of the pictures, I saw the Brown Barretts, who uh, was a movement here in the, in the University of Minnesota, led by Mexican people, uh, associated with the civil rights movement in the United States. So Mexicans are everywhere, but we haven't been noticed. So uh, it's time for us to really look at uh, the Latino culture, uh, the majority of us Mexicans, and uh, embrace it as a possibility for us to maintain a good standpoint in the first or the second state in the nation, but also to be better. So thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. Uh, you know, the, um, the viewpoints of our panels that were just expressed perfectly encapsulates the main point I wanted to, to address, and that is that you know, there's a long-standing Mexican community in Minnesota, and, and yes, they are dairy workers and meat packers and farmers, but they are also doctors and engineers and professors and journalists and artists and, you know, every stripe. And yet, the image uh, in Minnesota is fixed on the former. And I, I want to hear from our panels, how do we enlarge that vision? You know, without uh, you know dismissing uh, those, but also uh, you know get people to uh, understand um, you know how broad the contributions are and how far they range. So, who would like to go first? <laughs> well, I think um, when when it comes to contributions to Mexicans and Latinos to Minnesota and in the U.S. in general. Tool that I have used in my scholarship is in the arts, and the reason is because I think I can reach more people. Um, printmaking was created as a means to distribute lots of uh, images um, and time, and then I also think that trying to get people to come together a lot of times it's community-based and, and celebratory, and so if you can find ways to draw people in. Why don't I make it? Sorry. Um, yeah, so I'm sorry, but if you can find ways to gather people together, something that they have in common, maybe it's food, maybe it's art, but I think that that way they become more open, because I think 
one of the biggest obstacles to understanding each other is simply the isolation. And have you found that easier uh, over time? I mean, like with Ofo, I came here in the 90s, and there were very few images of, uh, I mean, you couldn't find a mural um, outside of West St. Paul. Um, you didn't really see uh, Mexican art, and, and I do see it more and more now. So has it become easier to get installations, to get a presence at the Minnesota Art Institute? I think there's an effort being made, but we have a long way to go. Long way to go. So that's why um, I've been working with, especially with the museums and such, and trying to find out ways to draw the community in as well to see. For instance, there's an exhibit right now We've been trying to do programming around that to draw in not just the uh, Minnesota communities, but the Latino communities who might not be visiting these establishments. And, and anybody else, how, how do we expand that vision and heighten that <coughs> presence so that Minnesotans have a greater understanding of what this community is about? So, um, I mean, that is one of the reasons why, um, really at the core of the organization that I'm a part of, Latino League. Uh, was started. I think oftentimes uh, we know, um, you know, of our own contributions because we are the ones working in all these spaces. Um, and it, oftentimes it's about like connecting each other and really getting to know where, where we are, um, which is one of the things that um, Latino League really tries to do to collect, um, you know, us um, as Latinos in general from all different sectors to come together and and really network, but also like learn about the different and awesome things that our communities are. Um, and I think one of the things too is, is making sure that we are taking the, our narrative back, as Erica um, was mentioning, um, on ensuring that we are really the ones that own our narratives and our stories and highlighting um, not only the stories of our past and, and making sure that we keep those stories of our elders that have paved the way, but also like how do we also include the stories of our emerging leaders, of our emerging um, and really new and younger um, workforce. Um, and that's definitely something that I've seen a little bit more about, uh, but it's something that we should and need to uh, continue to highlight um, in terms of our own um, narrative to build that bridge. Um, I think that it starts with us. Mm -hmm. And also it starts with us telling our children. Um, having seven children, I, I am passionate for, um, for youth and for our little ones. And I think that it needs to come from us. Um, and I know that the, um, the rhetoric that they hear or the situations that they face in school sometimes is not good, but we need to tell them that they are valued and they are contributors and um, see us fight for them as well. And I think that um, when we start with us, when we start with us and our families, I think we're able to move that along because it's like a domino effect. And then they they have a good sense of themselves, self-esteem, great self-esteem, and then they can take it forward. Whether they are from Mexico, whether they're from Guatemala, whether they are from wherever, that they are um, valued and, and awesome contributors to our state and our economy. Yes, yeah, that point uh, is very important not only to uh, work ourselves, with ourselves, but also to demand the different authorities, different kind of uh, people in, involved in education, mm -hmm. in different policies, in housing, 
to work with us in a different way because uh, I, I remember uh, one of the studies we did is like uh, asking people about their opportunities in education and one student came up and said uh, when I was trying to see what was going to be my future in education the counselor in my high school told me well you know what and maybe two years technical college but not don't be too optimistic and he said, why? Well, because you're Latino, so you have limitations by nature. That told me that uh, that person is not well prepared, is not well informed, is not really aware about the value he's taking out of that. And also uh, not really uh, doing anything uh, in favor of really impulsing or promoting that, that kind of movement. And we need to demand that to change as well. So it's uh, working with us, but also working with other people in different uh, political and economic and um, the making decisions spheres for us to really change things. And uh, that's important. Um, I just want to say one quick example. Something that um, there is an early childhood um, uh, education initiative, Cradle to Career in Rochester. And I have told them, Please do not do this without us. Um, please have, because they're trying do to it with us, not to us, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're trying to work and make sure that uh, children are um, uh, at a young age, that they learn to read and write and all of that, and, uh, and work in the disparities, but is from everybody else's perspective, not from our perspective. And so I said, please don't make decisions without us. Very important. Um, we have so many um, good questions from our audience and I want to get to as many as I can. I'm afraid of my limited amount of time I won't be able to, but uh, but I will try. So uh, one comes from, and this is directed to either Emma or Rebecca, it says, as an immigrant, I, um, I can tell that Minnesota nice is real, but how often or severe are the racist activities against the Mexican communities in the rural area of the state. And I know we were all pretty horrified about that story from Worthington with a bus driver who couldn't even bear to say good morning to the brown-skinned children um, that came on board his bus. And I know that's not entirely reflective of Worthington, but it does happen. Could you please speak to that? Um, I, I think that, I mean, we, we have different examples highlighted even more than they are now, um, but it's also um, part of the different spaces that I've seen many small communities go through as they're really trying to figure out um, really how to really embrace this beautiful change in, in rural and greater communities. Um, and so I think it's important to talk about them and it's important to, to really acknowledge the fact that they are there and um, you know, from my time and personal experience living in St. James, um, you know, the not only like the violence from community members, but you know, the raids that come oftentimes with um, within those different communities. Um, you know, violent crimes in schools of like teachers, similar to what Rolofo was saying, that happens that discourage us um, from really seeing ourselves as and, and really without any support to. Um, really make it and, try and, and live um, a dignified life in, in those areas. And so um, I think that um, 
they, from my I've experience, I know that they exist. I know that different communities are doing different things to make those um, better and, and really bridge those gaps. Um, but we have a lot of work to do, and it really takes both our own communities um, to create, um, you know, spaces for ourselves to really voice and demand um, needs for changes, but also the community itself and really realizing, right? Like I think communities are in a pinpoint right now where it's like. Either we're going to embrace this community or we're really going to try to do the same things that we've been doing for generations and generations. And oftentimes it's going to come to a point where actually it's not going to work that way anymore. Um, and so it's really about those two communities realizing and coming together in terms, but at the same time, like working within our own communities to demand the, the different changes um, and really focusing on the different threats, like, you know, driving things that our communities do um, and highlighting more stories like that. Um, I have a story to, to mention about that, and, and uh, I mentioned it yesterday at a meeting with Ambassador uh, Barcelona and, and Consul Guerrero, um, and the, there was this young um, girl in high school, so she wasn't in, in math class, and uh, she uh, answered the question that the teacher asked, and, and she was wrong. Uh, and then the, the, the white girl next to her said, oh, don't worry, um, mates don't need math. Don't need to know math. Uh, so that girl mentioned that to her dad, and her dad called me and said, this happened at a, a high school in Rochester. And uh, so he told me the high school, and, and, and I know the principal because my kids go to that high school. And, and I called him and said, Mr. Olson, this happened, and um, what are you going to do about it? Um, we need to stand up. I, I, um, I see a lot of the Latino community that walk with their hand, with the face looking down. I don't like that because I, I tell them, please raise your head and keep it held high because if you are here, you're contributing. You are a member of our community and your value. So uh, Mr. Rosen said, oh, I, I am so sorry. We do have, um, we do train our teachers because that was the first thing that I asked him. I said, I hope this teacher, that I hope he didn't hear it. And I'm going to think the best of the teacher that he didn't hear it. But if he did, he didn't do anything. So. Um, then I was able to connect this father and the principal, and they were going to connect and talk about what happened. And I'm very, very happy to hear that there is an infrastructure that is being built for these things to be recorded. And, and, and because we would tend to say, well, it happened. Well, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. we need to speak up and to say, no, you're not. No, I am not, and I will raise my head because I am a member of this community. And in my conversations with mayors, with uh, representatives, and, and I said, our Latino community contributes to the state, and we belong here. We are here, and we love it, and we want to work with you, uh, but please respect us as a community. Mm -hmm. Bill, did you have something you want to tell us? Well, yeah, I, I understood it was a picture for them too, but <laughs> yeah, um, I guess uh, we are 
always is a risk. Uh, my son himself uh, studied at the state of and uh, two years ago it was an incident in which a group came into the campus and then painted uh, some uh, offensive statements against immigrants uh, in the, the, on the walls. Uh, it was a some situation really uncomfortable because uh, we might not expect that happening in a university campus in a college. So uh, that's telling you that you don't really see perhaps on your daily life what it is in there. And that we need to really be aware about that. And uh, as Rebecca was mentioning, uh, knowing what to do in those cases and denounce them. Because if we start saying, well, that happens, and that is a thing that we go through with well, immigrants in the United States, that doesn't, that doesn't help. And perhaps we need to change the Minnesota Nice to uh, Minnesota Nicer. I <laughs> That would be a good start. I'm going to contribute my own little bit of myth-busting here um, that you may or may not know of the almost 200,000 Mexicans who live in Minnesota. At least 60% of them were born here. And uh, that is another, uh, I, I think, um, you know, myth that we need to uh, take aim at is that this is not a community. There are undocumented, um, but there are many who are born here and they are citizens and proud members of both countries. So uh, I want to ask one more question here. I'm actually going to sneak in a combination with another one here um, because I think they're both short. Um, if you could speak to the um, communities and attitudes regarding the census and uh, what is being done in terms of outreach to um, uh, Latin and Mexican communities and some of the tensions surrounding that and then also um, in a related question uh, whatever tensions there might be between documented and undocumented Mexican immigrants, which um, I think is something that doesn't really get talked about a lot. I'm going to take this. Uh, I am a passionate of the census. Mm -hmm. uh, our organization is a counting committee. Uh, so uh, we truly believe that everybody has to be counted. Everybody. It doesn't matter the real condition. But we also recognize that we need trying to outreach with populations that are really scared about it. Because especially the, 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 all the jargon coming out from the presidency telling them that uh, we're going to be asked about the citizenship status and all that, really scared a lot of people. Today we go to houses and uh, they are really thinking of not really saying anything, even though they might be documented because they fear that the parents would be affected if they are documented. So they try to hide that information. So even those born here even are, are reluctant to be here, counted for fear of giving away relatives. They don't want to talk, talk about in the census because they say, I need to report my father because they will with me and he's undocumented. So they are afraid of that consequences. And today is going to be a challenge for everybody. We were talking on this with Rosa Top, who is the executive director for Minnesota Council of Latin Affairs, um, are coming together organizations, Latino organizations led, and uh, working together on generating more effective outreach uh, uh, exercise with, with the population. And also, well, uh, regarding the, the school retention, we have uh, the lowest retention rate in the, in the state of Minnesota, uh, only behind the uh, Native Americans. Uh, regardless if they are documented or undocumented, it is a big problem. But it is less among documented immigrants because most of them, the people who are documented, they do have a background that helps them better to stay at school. Mm -hmm. 
that is also positive. And now uh, many of Latinos nowadays are coming uh, well prepared, coming from South America, for example, with parts who are already educated and all that. So they are just promoting that. Um, their kids study up to the end. But the retention rate is very low for Latinos <coughs> in general. Um, many reasons. Uh, the economic reason is uh, very, very high still because even though many Mexicans or Latinos work here in Minnesota, they are having very low incomes. And then they demand some support from their kids when they are able to work. And that happens when they finish either the first, second year of high school. So they are called to come and work. Are you all still finding, uh, or are you finding that uh, message that there will not be a citizenship question on the census? Is that getting out to people? Do they understand that? So, um, I am also president of the Board of Immigrant Center in Census is one of the priorities. 
So we are already working with the federal authorities. We have instructed the consulates to, to do and to promote that the Mexican community is counted in the census. We're working with the federal authorities, not just to <coughs> underline and give again and again the guarantees that the information in the census will not be used for other purposes. So to create the trust that is needed to answer. But also we know that the, the census presents some challenges because you need to explain very well how first you have the option of answering it through internet. If not, then you can answer it in writing. And if not, if people go to your home. And so we are going to work on this. We are already organizing a set of webinars with the census authorities, with Maleo, which is a federal organization that is much more involved in the issue of census 2020. And that, uh, as far as we can, the Mexican community in Minnesota will receive all the support of the consulate for, for this issue, and not only for this issue, but in general for the issues that affect the Mexican community, because we are very proud of them, and I think that the U.S. and Minnesota is also very proud of them, so we need to work together. Thank you, Ambassador, for those important additions. And uh, please thank our panel. Thank you.